0: This podcast is a collaboration between Costard and Touchstone Productions and the Dads from the Crypt podcast. The Pearl. I cannot tell you
1: how much you disappoint me. I thought we could have been friends. Now I swear to you, I swear to you, that even if I wanted to give you the Pearl, I cannot, right at the moment, put my hands on it.
2: I'm not an idiot, Duval. You've got it here. And it doesn't make sense that you'd be sitting around waiting for the rebels to show up. Maybe you are.
0: Christ, you know goddamn well that army convoy isn't gonna make it. That's not
1: true. And now you insult me. I want you to get away.
3: Sure. Just give me the fucking pearl! I told you I cannot
1: lay my hands on it. You're full of shit, Duval.
0: Hi, welcome to the How Not to Make a Movie Podcast. I'm Alan Katz. Before we get going, if you enjoyed this podcast and there's a way to indicate that fact by liking it, please do so. It helps feed the algorithm, don't you know? And that helps feed us. Just as good, if not better, please subscribe. That way, you'll know about all the other great episodes coming and lots of other cool things in our production pipeline, too. There is a lot of other cool stuff coming. It's hard to believe our friend Toby Hooper has been gone so long. Hardly a podcast goes by where we don't reference Toby one way or another. He was a fascinating person to know and work with. Like a lot of people who succeed in horror or who create iconic horror characters and stories, Toby was a pussycat. There was nothing scary about him. Toby didn't set out to change the movie business when he set out into the movie business in the 1960s. At the time, he was a college professor and a cameraman in search of work. In 1965, he made a documentary short subject called *The Heisters*, which was good enough to get invited to enter the short subject category for an Oscar. Alas, Toby couldn't get the cut done in time for that year's competition. But hey, that early cut did get him the invite. With Toby, there was always something there. Four years later, in 1969, Toby made his first feature, *Eggshells*, for forty thousand dollars. We'll talk about that in the episode. Eggshells didn't go anywhere, but it got Toby and his friend and creative partner, Kim Henkel, thinking about how to make a movie that might go somewhere. As many aspiring movie makers do, Toby and Kim turned to horror, and before long, inspiration in the form of murderers Elmer Wayne Henley and Ed Gein hit like a chainsaw. In the episode, we interviewed Kim Henkel and Levi Isaacs. As Kim will tell you, he and Toby were like brothers in all the good ways and some of the bad ways, too. While Levy ended up as a director of photography and he DP'd for Toby on multiple occasions, including feature films and an episode of Tales from the Crypt, Levy has a very different credit on the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. In fact, he's not listed in the credits at all, but he's definitely there in the movie. I'll let Levy tell the story. We'll start with Gil, however. I had the pleasure of working with Toby on several occasions, which was always richly rewarding. But Gil and Toby, well, they were buddies. They really had
4: a relationship.
0: I worked with him. Uh, I was friendly with him. You were friends with, with Toby.
4: Yeah, you know, we started out as a working relationship on Tales from the Crypt. And, and, and before that, on the horror thing we did for, I think, CBS. Um, haunted Lives. Haunted lives. I think, you know, from those two experiences in a professional capacity, we just became really good friends. And it it it, it survived, you know, until he passed. Mm-hmm. Um, we would talk all the time and you know, and share dinner and share stories and just enjoy each other's company. And you know, it went on for all these all those years after Tales from the Crypt and after we worked with him. He was very smart, um, he was very sweet. He really was a nice person. Yes, I mean, you know, he really cared about people and and the people that he cared about, he really cared deeply for them. Um, There was conflict, you know, there were arguments, there were problems, there were issues. But, you know, like with any good relationship, um, that's all part of the course. A quick note about the show we're referencing. Gil and I made a
0: pilot called Haunted Lives True Ghost Stories for CBS. The feature episode was about how the famous Hotel Del Coronado in San Diego is haunted by a beautiful young woman named Kate
4: Morgan, who committed suicide there in 1892. Toby came to me one day and he said, have you have you been in that room? I go, what room? You know, the room, the room, you know, the room, the room. We're talking about the room. We're shooting in that room. I said, yeah. He goes, have you have, have you felt it? I said, you mean the ghost? Yeah. had a ghost i said well you know sort of i guess now the the
0: the the ghost in question was her name was kate morgan yeah and the the story was that that the hotel del coronado in san diego that very famous hotel is haunted by a ghost
4: uh, of who was a living person named kate morgan who died there right and and who was in the that room Right. That specific room right so you know i had a i sort of had to calm him down from that experience and and say toby you know that's why we're here because we think it's real no no but it's but it is real <laughs> and so you know that was kind of a funny conversation um especially to, to talking to someone like toby hooper who's known for creating that world and that kind of stuff but when he came confronted with it in in real life it, it became a little bit more frightening so how does it happen?
0: How does a college professor and documentary cameraman, that's what Toby was doing in the late 1960s, suddenly become a horror movie legend? Well, it's complicated, like Toby himself. Kim Hankel co-wrote Texas Chainsaw Massacre with Toby and co-produced it. But Chainsaw wasn't Kim and Toby's first time at the rodeo together.
5: We had our ups and downs, you know, ping pong ball sorts of thing, but you know- there was Creative all these... relationships do. Yeah. Uh... You know, we we sort of grew up together, so we knew one another, and there was that kind of, you know, bond that comes of that kind of relationship of that time in your life uh, that always exists, and, you know, you always tap back into it in some way or another. Mm
0: -hmm. So, uh,
5: you know, uh, even though, you know, it was very rocky at times, you know, there was always something there.
0: The first thing you guys did together was a little, little piece called Eggshells. Mm-hmm, yeah. Eggshells, yeah. which was not a horror piece at all. Cinematographer
1: Levy Isaac. It was basically a documentary about uh, the 60s. Now, the thing of it is, it captures that time so well. I mean, I was just really knocked out. It just, I mean, you feel what it was like to l- live and be in that era.
0: As far as I can tell, Eggshells is about hippies living in a house and there's something in the basement.
5: <laughs> well, that that's a good a good uh, a way of expressing what it's about as any, because it's 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 uh, kind of elusive. <laughs> elusive,
0: elusive. Uh, I I I think I saw someone describe it as experimental.
5: <laughs> when, I would uh, that every bit of the way.
0: When when I was in college, uh, yeah, that that basically, well, I think the word we would use now is self indulgent but yep anyway so eggshells was uh but just out of curiosity then okay what was in the basement
5: <laughs> uh if, if i knew i wouldn't tell you but oh, uh, damn. I, have, I have no clue <laughs> it's been a million years since i've, I've seen that and uh, I have no more clue uh, now about it what it, what it was about than I did you know the 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 day I saw the completed work, uh, you know it was it required a leap of faith to say the least.
4: How did you originally hook up and know Toby? How did you guys come together?
5: Uh, on the set of Eggshells, actually, you know the 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 main principal subjects of that film were, were friends of mine, and uh, we were actually huh? living together in the same house. You know, one of those old uh, houses, you know, north of uh, the UT campus in Austin. And there were, what, four uh-huh. or five of us living there. What the year was
0: this? What, and, and, and the year is what? 70,
5: 1970.
0: Yeah. <laughs> 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 it's a very particular time and place.
5: Yes, yes. And in Austin, Texas, it was remarkable. Austin was, population of Austin was about 300,000 at the time. It was Um, a small town.
0: I I know that Toby was on campus when the famous incident with the the shooter in the bell tower happened. Were you on campus at at that time? Uh,
5: No, I wasn't. I I actually was uh, on campus quite a bit the day before the shooting happened. My my older brother and I were in Austin uh, looking for uh, lodgings for the fall semester. So we were, you know, looking for apartments and housing and we're all over and uh, left the day before. And fortunately, you know, because we would have been right in the line of fire. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I I don't know. Do you guys know Luke Perryman uh, who was in Chainsaw 2 character actor was a good friend of Toby's part of the Austin scene there?
0: Uh, No, of him. Mm
5: Yeah, his his brother also was a, a collaborator with to- Toby's early on, and he lived about a block from campus, pulled out a camera, went over to campus, shot a lot of footage, and wound up selling uh, his f- photographs to uh, Life magazine. And if you see Life magazine spread on that um, tower shooting, most of those photographs are by Ron Perryman.
0: I, I wonder if the, having been, on campus when that happened. I, I wonder really how that impressed Toby as, as creative people, these things always find their way into, into what
5: we do. Um, I'm, I'm sure that's the case. That's, you know, something that we never really talked about him, that, that experience. Uh, you know, we talked about a great deal, but, uh, that particular experience, we we did not. I don't recall uh, it, that uh, conversation on that. It, it's a particularly
0: timely and, experience, you know. Here here in America, I mean, it's it's it, that has not gone away. The the shooter in the tower, the the horror that mm-hmm. you feel in the moment is you can't you can't write that. It, it's right. It's still so automatic.
5: In, in a way, that was that was the inciting incident, so to speak, of, of what we've you know come to. Uh, find uh, occurs almost daily now in our lives
0: as you as you look at at eggshells <clears throat> that thing in the basement was there any horror to the thing in the basement or was it just an esoteric kind of a was it a threat was it it was, it it, it was more uh
5: it, it it was a mystery as to whether or not it was a threat or not Is my vague recollection of it it was a spirit uh, uh a presence, an, an electronic uh, huh. uh, uh, entity, to, uh, for want of a better expression, and you know what its particular characteristics were were not quite uh, defined. When Toby and I first started talking about doing what became Chainsaw, right? Uh, we had uh, a lot of conversations when we basically put together the structure of it, but we had a fundamental difference. And what Toby was interested in initially was something in that house that was similar to what was in that basement. <laughs> My feeling was, you know, what really was truly frightening was us. There, there was a lot of pragmatism involved as well. Uh, you know, Eggshells came out, and I think it appeared in one theater somewhere for one evening. Maybe it appeared at a film festival or two. But in those days, there just weren't any ancillary markets. Yeah, you know, you either got into theater, or you died. You, left, you were sitting on a shelf. Yeah, and yeah. even had there been, you know, the, the, had the world been different, or had the been world been more like there was today, and there been opportunity, it probably wouldn't have found a really broad audience. Uh, it was, as you said, you know, uh, somewhat indulgent and, that didn't have, you know, the the kind of focus that I think you know was going to win a broad audience. Let's say. Uh, so when we sat down to talk about chainsaw, that was one of the things we have in mind. You know, okay, here we are. We have no money, which means we're not going to have access to you know top talent, production values, etc. So given those circumstances, given the fact that there are no ancillary markets. What can we as unknowns do to try to actually get it into theaters? Yeah. And it seemed to us two two answers to that. One was science fiction, the other horror. And horror, I think, okay. you know, the direction that we okay. chose. You weren't
0: horror nerds, as, as you set out to make the movie?
5: Uh, well, I certainly wasn't. I wasn't even a movie nerd. You know, I was a book nerd.
0: <laughs> so, yeah. So, you know, that's... That that it sprang from something more.
5: Well, I would read a lot of uh, fairy tales, uh, Japanese fairy tales, German fairy tales, fairy, fairy tales from around the world. Mm-hmm. And part mm-hmm. of it was we were looking at what is at the core of these things that that allowed them to endure uh, endure across centuries. What are they getting at? You know, it's fundamental kind of human concerns and fears we felt was at the core of them, and we were trying to find a way for ourselves to sort of enter that same space.
0: The the source material, of course, was uh, Ed Ed Gein up in uh, was in Wisconsin. Ed, yeah.
5: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: and there was a well, he, another he, case he, in Texas yeah. That, that
5: yeah. Mm-hmm. the kind of thing they called the Candyman murders in Houston, Elmer Wayne Hintley. But. That's- but, cool. but what you and Toby created on the
0: page was something, mm-hmm. something quite quite different from from either of those things. I mean, oh, of course, yes. Ed Ed, Ed Gein was 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 a loner. Uh, mm-hmm. This other guy was a loner. Mm-hmm. You all created a family,
3: mm-hmm.
0: a very very different, very different thing, and and mm-hmm. really and truly. Uh, you know, I, oh. I went back and, and and I watched it, you know, uh-huh. last night just because just just to refresh my my memory and and it, it really, it's a monster you care about.
5: Leatherface. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When, uh, in,
0: in fact, you, you care. You
5: yeah. Frankly, the, the, you you kind to care it, about the whole
0: family unit because it's a family unit, and and mm-hmm. he's Leatherface is is just really. He's part of a family unit.
5: Mm-hmm. Well, I grew up in a very large, uh, very dysfunctional family.
0: What was it like writing a script with with Toby?
5: Uh, what was it like?
0: Gil and I have written scripts together. We have a process. Right. Uh, right. As as Toby and you wrote the script together, mm. what was your collective
5: process? Okay. Well, I, I mentioned to you, we we talked about doing something a few years before we actually sat down to write the chainsaw script. And we basically had a, a, a fundamental approach and structure, which was uh, structurally was sort of Hansel and Gretel, frankly. and uh, But uh, the, the, the conversations we were having were uh, who was in that house and my inclinations were tended toward, you know, what's most frightening is us, you know. Uh, and, you know, Toby was inclined towards something closer to, you know, what was in the basement and eggshells. And, you know, of course, in, in those days, most horror that you saw of creatures were supernatural. You didn't see too much, of, uh, you know, human beings, but, I felt very powerfully, very strongly that, you know, that was where the real fear resided. And so we finally came together on that point. And I think, you know, uh, Toby tells a story about going to a Montgomery ward and seeing Chainsaw. And I, I, I think that's largely a fiction, but you know, it's, it serves the story well, or the, the concept well. But he did call me up one day and said, hey, let's go to work. I've got an idea about how we can make it work. because." And make it human, and he had an idea for uh, a character that was more or less the Leatherface character.
0: Okay, so that's 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 really the key. So really, it started started with the Leatherface character,
5: right? Yeah, we took sort of different points of view and and, and emerged to uh, something that was, I think, satisfied both of us. Let's say, cool. And you know, the the, the supernatural appeared, you know, in the in in Chainsaw, uh, uh, of course. Uh, in, in in terms of what you see from uh, the, 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 the sense of this is a time that's faded astrologically. You know, Mars is in retrograde.
0: Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Lining yeah.
5: up. So, you know, we didn't leave that aside, but it took a, a bit of a different form. One of the films that was very influential, what we saw actually it was released in, I think the spring of 73 was Straw Dogs, Peck and Paw Straw Dogs. Sure, 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 sure. And Toby and I were in Houston for some reason or another, and we, we went to see that. We both came out of the, the, the theater just enervated, just drained, you know, mm-hmm. b- because it would, had that kind of intensity. And we wanted that very much. So that very much influenced the, you know, the, the kind of impact we wanted to deliver with it.
0: Toby has said that it's a movie about meat.
5: Mm. <laughs> well, I can't say that it's a movie about meat. We certainly, you know, uh, brush past that territory. <laughs> but uh, to say it's a movie about meat, uh, about meat specifically, I think is, you know, uh, maybe a bridge too far. Well,
0: you know, there's there's a there's a terrific, you know, we're always seeing that chicken in the cage, and and you know, there's mm-hmm. the there's the. The conversation about killing cows in the van. It's quite a good argument for vegetarianism because really how how can we you know we, we don't feel that badly about the cow when, when we right. either you know stun it or or take a sledgehammer to its head. Right. And really, mm-hmm. that's all that's happening to you know these characters mm-hmm. when they walk, hey, they're no more than meat walking into the place where people looking to eat it.
5: Well, I I would have to point out to you that never once in the entirety of the film was the word cannibalism, you know, ever heard. Uh, No consumption of human, identifiably human flesh ever takes place. Mm -hmm. True, true. Oh, talk about consuming everything to do with cannibalism is absolutely implied and deliberately so. In, In those days, if you had touched upon that subject, you would get an X rating.
0: Oh and surely, surely, surely. In, real trouble. in point of fact, you don't see anything. All the violence, all the violence is off screen. In in that first movie, there's there's really nothing on screen. It's all implied, really. You know, Toby takes you right up to the last second, but you never see anything.
5: That was strategically part of the plan, but it also was greatly influenced by our uh our budget. We uh you know, for mm-hmm. practical reasons, you know, avoided certain kinds of things that we knew we couldn't quite really pull off in, in the way we might have liked to if we were going to do. It. And a lot of people have told me over the years, you know, the scene where the, uh, the uh, Pam character is hung on the meat hook, you know, the, the people think they see that meat hook pierce flesh and come out the other side of it, you know, but, it, but you never see that. And uh, today, I think, you know, most filmmakers, you would see that in dramatic fashion. Oh, oh! start but to finish. Uh, we stole that scene incidentally, the whole, almost whole hog from Frankenstein. I think it was the 31 version where there's a scene where the Frankenstein character hangs uh, a butcher on a meat hook, but it's all out of, out, of, out of frame. You know, you don't see it happen. But what you do see and what arrested us was you see... The, the effect of the weight of the body hanging onto that hook. Yeah, so
0: can- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it It hurts to watch. Yes.
1: Grave robbing in Texas
0: is this hour's top news story. Eventually, Levy Isaacs would become one of Toby's go-to cinematographers. But interestingly, Levy started in the film business, that's well, what he does in Chainsaw, as a voiceover artist, reading the news over the radio.
1: Way that happened was is that I knew uh Kim Hinkle. Kim Hinkle was uh Toby's co-writer and he asked me to do that because at the time I you know I'd started in in a local uh radio and television station and uh and I was doing a little of radio reading the newscast and basically that's all I did was read a newscast and it was a very typical newscast in the background uh that would be that would fit right into Texas.
0: So you have a relationship with Kim Hinkle Right, and Kim Hinkle. The relationship with Kim Hinkle is your introduction to Toby.
1: Is my that's exactly right. When I got to LA, you know, that first movie that I did at Roger Corman, the first person I called was Toby Hooper, and uh, and you know he, I mean, this is before you know the uh, the VCR and the three quarter inch or about the beginning of it. The only way to show it to him is he had to come down to the studio and look at it on the screen. Wow. which is the best way to look at it. So, and he did, you know, and and I, I'm very grateful to him for that. It was, it was, uh,
0: what was his, uh, what were his thoughts?
1: Uh, well, he liked the work, you know, I mean, it was a comedy, so it wasn't a lot of dramatic lighting, uh, but it was very well photographed in his opinion. So, uh, you know, he had confidence in me at that point uh, because it was on film. I mean, God, the camera that uh, they had at Corman, you could hardly see through it. It was horrible. <laughs> it was just, I mean, it was just, you had to strain your eye <laughs> to see it through was, this thing it was so old, it was an old uh, AirFlex BL. It was just horrible. Wow. Well, That wow. was the,
4: that was part of the test that Roger would put you through. You know, if you really needed to see through the camera or not. <laughs> <laughs> right, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> he, he felt that was overrated. What, what do you need to look
0: through? the camera? <laughs> Toby is a great shooter. He really had a great eye.
1: Well, you know, that's what I noticed about him. I mean, you know, he had the big reputation in Austin, Texas. I was going to the university, and uh, and I was following him and some of the people that surrounded him. He did these great commercials, uh, uh, in particular uh, political commercials, uh, one for a senator. And all they had was like a wheelchair. But they were doing this thing about smoke-filled rooms, you know, and, and the ending shot was this just great storytelling shot where the where the door closes, and then the smoke goes into a whirlwind. That was the ending shot. I mean, I just thought that was just so special. and I mean, it just tells the story of these backroom deals. I mean, he was just really, I mean, he was a brilliant cinematographer. Case in point,
0: the swing shot. Pam and Kirk have discovered the house. Because that's what people do in horror movies, Kirk has wandered inside because they wouldn't come to the door. Pam waits for him on the swing outside, and then she heads for the house. The camera starts beneath the swing. It follows her to the house. Levy Isaacs.
1: He oftentimes used wide-angle and close like that, you know, to go under that swing and create that that dramatic move. And, you know, that was one of the things that I started copying from him.
0: The stories of production hardships from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre set are legends. It sounds like a hellacious experience it was uh it was hot when you yes. got when you got into the house it was it was it was even hotter the humidity was terrible there was no air conditioning <clears throat> uh the the set deck had been done with with real live animal parts
5: uh yes <laughs> yes that's that's true
0: which, you know, we, uh, we,
5: were shooting, we were shooting during the day of course so we had the windows blacked out and of course you know the Texas heat in, in, in August and the and the film lights and the, and, you and know, the humidity foam. and
4: the humidity
5: <laughs> yeah no it was uh, well, they
4: saved they, they were they were able to save on the caterer <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
5: Well, it's like nobody gained any weight
0: the leatherface costume apparently because there was just one there was just one there were three masks but really just the one costume
5: Mm
0: -hmm. so there was no really there was no way to to wash it because it couldn't dry in time you were what shooting seven days a week uh so Gunnar wasn't able to change he 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 wore the same outfit for the whole for the duration of 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 the shoot without it ever being washed (laughs) And what I've read is that the the stink was so terrible towards the end that really no one wanted to stand near the man is this, is this true
5: I, you know I don't recall it quite like that, but I, I think you know at, at that point in the in the process, you know there were so many competing odors, but his would have blended with the with the general atmosphere. Uh, let me tell you the background to, to to the last few days of the shoot the the uh, character played by John Dugan the grandfather you know he was 19 year old kid uh, and we had a uh, prosthetic mask on that were had been made by a local uh, uh, <laughs> uh, plastic surgeon uh, here. <laughs> yeah <laughs> who uh you know had, had a little interest in 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 film and he made these masks for us but well, they they were in multiple parts there wasn't not a single thing to be put in that place so multiple pieces and they had to be basically glued on
0: oh dear
5: and we had three three different ones so at the end of the shoot we were on the last mask and we just had to keep shooting until we got him shot out or we were in trouble so we shot uh, better than 24 hours almost 30 hours in that house straight oh my god oh my god so you know uh odor after a point you know becomes incidental you know uh because the heat was was, was the well, the worst of it and In that house with the windows blacked out, no AC, the lights and all of that.
0: Here's something neither Gil nor I knew about our friend Levy. He covered Chainsaw as a journalist.
1: covered them as a story, shooting uh, uh, Uh when they were out on location. Uh, I went out and covered, that was another, you know, intro to uh, Toby. Hmm. Went out and and did stories about the shooting of it. In particular, uh, I remember I shot the ending where, you know, Black Maria comes down the road and all that
0: maybe Toby's skill as a filmmaker bit him in the ass his craft convinced everyone that his movie was far bloodier than it was jason stein is one of the dads from the crypt
3: texas chainsaw such a more nuanced movie than just leatherface running around chopping people up with a chainsaw in fact for a movie called a texas chainsaw massacre only one person actually gets chainsawed i'm gonna reference uh, our friend chelsea rebecca from dead me she did an amazing Uh, podcast episode very well researched very nuanced about a lot of the theories and things happening there so i'm I'm cribbing from her a lot because i I re-listened to that yesterday um but it's really to me that movie is really about consuming consumerism um both literally and figuratively about how society consumes the youth especially coming off of the vietnam war how uh commercialism consumes your money your your time um your blood sweat and tears and these group of youths run into this family of people that um are like an inverted family um they don't they, have any maternal they, figures they don't have well, any they, they are
0: consumers they're consumers of other humans
3: exactly <laughs> well because their jobs got consumed by the larger market their way of life got consumed the only thing the only way they have to survive is now to consume people There's just so much happening under the skin, Uh, literally under the skin, where Leatherface is is also consuming the people, not just digesting, but also on his facade. And all their furniture is made out of the bones that they found, other dug up or people that they've already killed. So they're, they're kind of upcycling people. They've taken literal people into their ecosystem of living.
2: Dad from the crypt, Armando Aguilar question about the movie being about meat that's an interesting statement i've never heard him. i've never heard before um because going back to to jason's comment on consumerism i think it fits right in there Uh, you know almost in a soylent green type of way that we are just pieces of meat going through the grinder day in and day out and um at the end of the day we're just we're just here to be consumed i saw a texas chainsaw massacre the first time i think i was seven I was way too young to be watching that movie but my <laughs> mom was in the horror and let me watch movies that I probably your shouldn't mom, be watching. Your mom
0: let you your mom let you watch Texas Chainsaw. Man,
2: uh, my first memory of ever seeing a horror film was actually walking in on her watching uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Mm-hmm. And the transformation scene where Jesse where Freddy's coming out of Jesse's body. So to sure. me that's still one of the most terrifying moments of cinema. Um but even as a kid, when I first saw this movie, so I, I wasn't obviously looking at the different layers he was trying to put in there. For me, it was at seven years old, you don't really pick up on that. Uh, but for me, the most terrifying character in the movie was the uh, was the, the, the who they call the old man was the, the patriarch of the family. Yeah, because you can just tell he's got this sinister. You like, brought up how Leatherface fits in this family dynamic, and for me, it's all like he's terrified. He's terror like for him to be this. This, you know, this larger than life, gruesome character. He's terrified of this scrawny, you know, I don't know it's just the scrawny or older man because of the way he treats everyone in the family.
3: Also, if you think about the family as a, as a larger symbol of like the grandpa being the old way, Leatherface is kind of the quote new blood, but he has no face or he's not willing to show his face. So it's kind of a an idea of a generation that's trying to figure out what it is compared to what's come before it, which, you know, the 60s into the 70s was all about, you know, shifting. Speaking of Gunnar Hansen, I ran into him very randomly once in the movie theater. Hmm. Um, it was just a small theater outside of Portland, Oregon, and I think he had a movie that was uh, the premiering of the kind of road showing. But I'm coming out of another movie, and you know I'm a big guy; I'm six foot four. So when I see another big person, but that makes me feel small, I, I stop yeah. and take notice. And we kind of did like we kind of acknowledge each other. And there's there's something, and somehow I just knew that that person is is something, there's more to this person.
0: The movie's success. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, are you surprised by it or not surprised? Kim Hankel.
5: Well, you know, when we were doing this, you know, we were trying to make a movie that at the end of the day we would like to see in the sense, take us for a ride. Don't disappoint us. We could never have anticipated it. it, I mean, who who could, you know, I mean, this, this is remarkable. This movie that we made on, you know, bubble gum and bailing wire, uh, you know, has come to be, uh, what it is. And, uh, we, we could never have imagined that we were trying to do something that, uh, you know, would, would satisfy us, and, and in a way, we were very much helped by the fact that we were not Hollywood mainstream. Right. And the film did not go through that process of imagination that Hollywood projects inevitably go through in that process. So we didn't have those filters. You know, we had some producers at one point, believe it or not, they felt like some of the dinner table stuff was too funny and were afraid on the page they thought it was too funny. We did uh, a lot of things very differently than you you do on a normal set. So there was, you know, a lot of wild shooting, you know, handheld stuff. And uh, really, because of, you know, our our inexperience and all of that, uh, we were very lucky that we did that. And I think Toby very smartly did that because he felt like if he had everything covered, then he was going to, at the end of the day, be able to put something together, even if it was just piece by piece. And that's what really wound up happening. Uh, I, I think there are probably 10 times as many cuts in that film as there are in the average film. You know, Toby actually, you know, did a lot of the final editing work on it. You know, Larry Carroll and, and uh, Sally Richardson, you know, did the lion's share of that work. But, you know, Toby did a lot of detail stuff too, you know, to, get it exactly to the peak he wanted. And without that, I don't think it would have been what it, what it, what, it, what it is. And I, I I think, you know, that I think a lot of films, if they had that kind of care and attention, would be a lot better. Chainsaw initially was so vilified, you know, that uh, uh, appearances in it, you know, according to our cast, were, you know, an issue for, for them. And that was generally the case. We were pretty much vilified when we first came out. And, you know, we, we, we came and went, you know, we were gone, we were done. We thought it was over. And then, you know, a few kind of reviews snuck out. We got invited to Khan's um, uh, Fortnight, uh, uh, you know, director's Fortnight. And uh, then ultimately, uh, uh, when, when uh, Brianston, you know, w- went under and we were trying to chase them down new line acquired it and they re-released it in 81. And for many people, that was their first exposure to it. We, we made a deal with them and we got a few bucks up front money, but that, that was essentially it. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it, we weren't the only ones, you know, I mean, uh, they, they acquired a number of properties in the same fate for all, for all of them
0: indeed indeed
5: then when we tried to get it back they assigned it to a, another entity and then that entity assigned it further to another entity so it was a long train we had to chase to, to to finally get it back and we really didn't get it fully back in our hands until after the after the remake was made
0: now okay so jump forward a bunch of years
4: to haunted lives and tales from the crypt when we got together to do tales from the crypt and we decided you know who who better really who better than toby hooper to do an episode of tales from the crypt and so we asked him to do it and and uh it's the dead weight
0: episode with uh whoopi goldberg james remar vanity and uh, john reese davies right toby had a great first shot right in mind Uh huh. and uh it was It starts off uh there's uh james remar and vanity and they're having sex Uh, vanity is on top of james and it's a tropical setting uh the shot starts on the there's a mosquito netting over the bed and it tops the shot started at the very top of the mosquito netting then moving down the netting and then vanity sat up into the shot you realize oh that's what the noise is they're having sex and slowly, then, then at one point, Vanity would would, would would orgasm, and then she'd lie down on James. They'd have a little bit of conversation, and then James would get up, walk at a shot, cut. Right. It was a great shot. Yeah, there were a couple of you know, timing things, and uh, actors would, were going to have to get their lines right. Had great difficulty getting it once twice three four times always something screwing up and and
1: everything has to be perfect on a shot like that and Gil loves those shots I remember that
0: oh yeah 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 but finally you know we're not getting it and and a a time comes when you got to say okay you know uh we only have so much time for art let's just 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 cover it and you know so we we can cut the damn thing together right and and Toby said please just one more one more one more and and I remember begging Gil and 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 Gil relenting (laughs) okay one man we, we (laughs)
1: I remember the pressure, for sure.
0: (laughs) Me too. (laughs) And we roll. And Toby yells, action. And we start down. The shot begins. We're moving down. And Toby yells, vanity. And vanity sits up into the shot. And she's doing, doing, doing it. And and he shouts, now come. And she orgasms. And she lies down. And they begin their dialogue and and man, everyone's nailing it, nailing it, nailing it. Great, 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 great. Finally it looks like we're gonna get it. And finally, James Remark gets up to get out of bed. And as he gets out of bed to go to cross through the frame, his erect penis pops up into the bottom of the shot.
1: I remember that. Oh yeah, I remember
4: that. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) And and as we were all watching it on the monitor, we we watching we we all thought. I saw that no I I could not possibly have seen that please don't we could not have seen that and when we we all I, I don't know did we have the ability to to do playback back then
1: I don't think so I don't uh, think we so. Must, did we? I don't think so no I don't think so so no, so, so no. we
0: so we really had to 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 be honest with ourselves and say you know his penis popped up into the bottom of the frame and and Toby was just beside himself We're like oh my God no 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 please and we relented one more take, and, and that one that one went, but it was
1: right. Well, yeah, what did he do? Did he have to turn to his back to the camera to get out of bed? And that's what how he got away with it.
0: Well, no. Yeah. Ultimately, we, we we did it one more time. Yeah, and 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 he was able to. You know, we 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 pointed out to James he was going to have to control himself a little
4: bit. <laughs> <laughs> you oh, know, yeah. I think Toby did. I think Toby did adjust the camera move with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Every day we would we would usually have lunch with the director uh, basically to find out, you know, the A.D. would tell us where we were. But I wanted to know from the director's point of view how he felt. Yeah. And, you know, we always were up against the time and money. And so we everybody was, got five days of prep and five days to shoot. No exceptions. Right. And what we would do is we would make sure that in the writing um which i don't think most people realize or or recognize that in the writing we would write them for 5 days we would board them we would talk to the directors and say can you shoot these in 5 days and if they would say no we would go back and rewrite it and that's how we were able to keep everything on budget well you know toby agreed to it and i think it was the third day of shooting we stopped for lunch and i over and I sit down next to him, having already spoken to the AD, who came running into my office, saying there was a huge problem. I sat down next to Toby to say, "Hey, what's going on?" And he was he was he was in a in a state. He 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 was just, I I I, I don't know what to say to you. I I I, I don't know what happened. I, I I lost this morning. I I, I said Toby, Toby, calm down, calm down, stop, eat your lunch, and now tell me what happened. Well, I I I. I I, I I know that the opening shot for this for the show. Uh, I spent too much time and 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 I'm way behind now. And now it's lunchtime. And 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 you guys let me get that shot. I spent too much time, and now I have nine shots uh, to get in, after lunch. And I, there's no way in six hours I can get nine shots. And I don't know what to do because I. And I said, okay, Toby, I just 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 relax and have your lunch. Tell me exactly where you are. And he told me, and I said, okay. After lunch, you're going to go back into this room and you're going to only shoot in that direction, the way we're set up. You're not going to turn around. I said, okay, okay, I can do that. And I said, and I'm going to go upstairs, and Alan and I are going to talk about the script and we're going to find out what we can do. And I'm going to come down in 20 minutes and I'm going to give you perhaps a solution. And if you like <laughs> that solution, happen. and if you like that solution, you'll we'll do it. And if you don't like that solution, I'm not going to argue with you, but I'm going to go back upstairs and Alan and I are going to spend another 20 minutes trying to figure out another way of finishing this. And I will come down, perhaps with an idea of how many shots, if I were doing it, but I'm not going to say to you, you have to use those shots. I'm going to say to you, throw it out, but this is a way we can finish the day's work. And he said, okay, okay, but, but, but I can go back and I can, I can finish, I can finish. Finish where, where I'm shooting. I said, yeah, yeah, just calm down and have lunch. And then you and I went upstairs and I came down in 20 minutes and I said to Toby, okay, where are you now? And he goes, I finished everything shooting in this direction, but I do a close up on the girl this way. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, how long will that take to get us? I talked to the DP. He said, 10 minutes, maybe 15. I said, fine, do it. I said, however, after that shot, this is what I'm suggesting. You know, that set, That's next to us that we built and we painted and we dressed and we lit. You're not going into that set. And I'm not, I'm not mad because I'll use that set and Alan and I will figure it out and we'll write something else. What was
0: supposed supposed to happen was that uh, James Remar's character and Whoopi Goldberg's character were were going to search it. Yes. We're We're going to search that set. Looking yeah. for the pearl, which was inside
4: John Reese Dav- uh, Davies's gut. Right. So I said, "We're not going into that other set." And Toby said, "But, but, but, but we have to go into the other set. We're we're supposed to hide the the pearl. The, the pearl gets hidden in that room." I said, "Okay, okay. You gotta just quiet down and listen to me, and don't talk. And then after I ta- I say I'm finished, think about it for two seconds." And then talk okay and so i said you're not going to go into the other room he stays in this room he swallows the pearl well he he has swallowed the pearl in the past right and i said and on insert day which doesn't cost your episode any money because i'm doing a bunch of episodes for inserts on insert day and you can be there to shoot it if you like i see it as a medium shot cameras pushing in a hand comes into frame. There's a cadaver on a table. You hear squishy, 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 and you see a knife enter frame, and it cuts the cadaver on the side of the body. A hand goes into the body and pulls the pearl out to camera. And I stopped, and I said, "So, so, that's how we do that. What do you think?" And and his eyes were flashing back and forth and back and forth, and, and I, I said, "Just, just." Calm down, just think about it for a second. And as I said, if you don't like it, I'm not gonna argue with you. I'm gonna go upstairs and we'll figure something else out. And he goes, wait, 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 wait. Uh, this, this, this is better. This is actually better. I mean, the storytelling is better. I said, well, you know, sometimes you, you it's a win-win situation. And I said, and here, here's a, here's a shot list. I can do it in six shots uh, with, well, very much pro- of a problem we could definitely make it in six hours, probably even less. If you don't like those shots, throw them out. I have no ego about this. I don't care. You do what you want. Just make sure we don't go overtime. And that's how we made the day. And that that experience was really interesting because Toby never forgot that experience. He used Mm -hmm. to always remind me um, years later, he would say, you know, I've worked with a lot of producers. I've never had anybody do that. I've had people come to me and say, you have six hours, and I'm going to close you down. And you better figure it out, uh, you know. Or, or you know. And he said, "You didn't ever, You never did that. You you never threatened me. You you always came up with solutions, and he always said to me, if I don't like them, there are other solutions." And I said, "Yeah, but that's how you get the best work out of everybody, I think." And I said, hear, hear. "But he never he never forgot that. He always remembered that."
0: Dead weights, a good episode, but not a great one. I blame the script. Still, Toby's episode has fans. Jason Stein from Dads from the Crypt.
3: In his Tales from the Crypt episode, it has one of the grossest scenes in the whole show that's known for being gross out. Uh, when, which, when, which,
0: which scene are you referring to, Jason? I think
3: it's uh, it James Remar. is putting his hands inside uh, Jonathan Reese davis uh, Yeah, Jonathan Reese
0: davis guts.
3: His guts to get out to the... Um, what was it? The, was the it pearl. Was it key? Or pearl. The pearl.
0: Pearl he's got bone. blood and he's
3: got blood that- worms you can see the his chest is just covered with like worms yeah. on, under the skin oh
4: oh and you <laughs> found that gross oh my god <laughs> and here i thought you were a horror monger
3: <laughs> oh I, I gross in the way i love it <laughs>
4: and what about the
0: rest of toby's work
3: one of his lesser appreciated movies at least in, in the larger uh realm is funhouse that opening scene is probably one of the best opening scenes in the horror because it's it's referencing psycho, it's referencing Halloween, it's mm-hmm. referencing Giallo, it's referencing everything universal, <laughs> um, with all the posters and everything. It's <laughs> kind of like everything you could all want in like a two-minute sequence. Um, but even again, when we're talking about his craftsmanship, there is probably one of the best tracking shots, kind of where where it starts off on the boy leaving the tent and then it kind of zooms back and you don't understand like how long this is going for. And it starts zooming up to your higher than the Ferris wheel. Huh. And you start, you started on the ground with this boy. Then you're suddenly like up in the sky. And I, I had to look up how he did that. And they found a 150 foot crane. That's like gyroscopic that like had three, three 50 foot segments that each like s- smoothie came into each other. And like, again, fun house, you know, it's, it's a carny horror movie. You don't need that kind of shot, but that's what Toby wanted to do. There's a lot of dichotomies in Toby's movies about suburban, urban, uh, rural, city, yongle, because again, you have, what always cracks me up in Poltergeist is the Craig T. Nelson's character is old, older, a slightly older man who's reading a Reagan uh, biography, or he's reading a, a, a Reagan, novel, I can't remember the name of it. And he's got a much younger wife, mm-hmm. um, and he has a kid who's like not that much younger than his wife, so it's like there there's something again i i can't parse it out completely but there's something going on there and again they're they're built they're building their foundation on an indian bear ground so again we're, uh, we're layering again it's layering things and they, and of course they build a pool for their own luxury but then it interacts with what's come before them i don't think that stuff is there by mistake
0: there was a lot of conversation ab- about how much toby directed it and how much spielberg may have contributed to 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 directing it i i don't know that that's i, I think that's horribly unfair to, to toby mm-hmm.
3: uh, yeah I, I was reading about that too because i was doing a little background i think spielberg did a couple like second unit pickup shots just yeah. to help out and yeah. then i think that got i think that's how yeah. that got kind of completed
0: yeah, yeah 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 and it's it's so because if you look at the rest of of of, of toby's irv god the guy was such a great visual filmmaker he was he's the perfect choice for that movie that should have been where toby suddenly exploded armando aguilar
2: it it feels like a lot of mainstream media who didn't want to respect you know poltergeist was a very respected film and it feels like you know they kind of attached toby hooper to be the grind guy the grindhouse guy and they almost didn't want to give him that that spotlight to show that this guy could make such a fantastic movie even though you know for us horror nerds all of his movies are not all but most of the movies are pretty fantastic,
3: <laughs> right. I, I, I mean i will I will say that, yeah, there's definitely some Spielberg influence in 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 that movie, but that's nothing there's nothing wrong with that. And that's by design that that's a feature, not a flaw.
0: It's a collaborative work. you know, it, it's a great combination of. Of Toby's
2: mentality and and the Spielberg sensibility, wow! And I mean, it makes sense, right? If you no matter where you work at, you want to please your boss, <laughs> and, yeah. and you're going to do some cool little things. And and, and you know, everyone was a, who wasn't a Spielberg fan, right? Of course, it would be uh, there'd be a little bit of his fingerprints on there.
3: There should be, yeah. But I mean, as the you know, scene of a guy peeling off his own, having his, pay, his face peeled off, that's not that's not Spielberg. That's that's <laughs> pure Toby. And the, and again, the meat crawling, we got it's all about the meat. Uh, another movie I want to touch on is a Life Force. Which is probably his most ambitious and biggest movie. Um, it's by he, he said it was his biggest budget, his biggest mostly got paid for any movie at least up to the point of whatever interview I was watching. Oh wow! Um, and it's a it's science fiction. It's got like spaceships. It's got zombies. It's got vampires. It's got you know miniature destruction everywhere. And unfortunately, from everything we I can tell that they took it away they took the editing away from him and they really lost something in that because supposedly his version was about twenty minutes longer and. The Golan uh, production company, Canon, wanted to cut it down. So it's, it feels like a very, it feels like a Toby movie that was kind of hacked into a little bit.
0: And then, of course, there are the sequels that really aren't. And the reboots. Mando is a huge Chainsaw 2 fan. I loved, love, going. love,
2: love, love that movie. It's it's It also has, in my opinion, one of the best jump scares in the history of horror. Which when. Were- when they're in the when chop top bill mosley is in the recording studio and he's just it's very tense moment when he's talking with stretch the dj and leatherface just comes running out of the back room with a chainsaw and because it's it's one thing i thought toby Hooper is great with too with how he used sound in his movies Mm. because one thing that made me so uncomfortable as a kid watching texas chainsaw massacre was that you didn't have like the the traditional horror soundtrack you didn't have those peaks and valleys and uh, one of my favorite scenes in the original is when they're pushing Franklin in the wheelchair, who's also one of the most unlikable heroes or good guys in the history of horror. And all you hear is the sound of the chainsaw right as it goes through them. And they did the same thing in, in Texas, too, where you you don't you're not hearing anything. There's no there's no soundtrack going. And then all you see is Leatherface run out and you hear the chainsaw. And that scene, I was like, I, saw, I didn't see that the later in life, but I think I was like 17 or 18 when I watched that movie the first time scared the crap out of me. And Dennis Hopper is going full did, yeah. with a chainsaw fight. Like, come on. Like, how do you not love that movie? Mm-hmm. Well, he talked about how he wanted the original to be a black comedy, but then the filming conditions were so rough when you watched it back. He goes, Oh, this is terrifying. This isn't a black comedy at all. I think that's why he went more over the top with the second one, which was totally fine. Like it was, it's kind of cool to have I don't think it was, I mean, I would like to go back to that time period and see what people thought about it when it came out, because it was definitely a departure, like a huge departure from the first. It's like when a band you love just changes styles. Yeah. And I think it's, it's probably really alienating the time. I mean, even now, people will argue that you know there, there are people that hate that movie because of how campy it is. And I was like, no, that's what that's the beauty of it. And that's the beauty of the Toby Hooper right there. Kim Henkel also has thoughts about the sequels.
0: I did
5: not made one of them, unfortunately, but I think they're all generally, you know, like most sequels, they just they're 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 rarely satisfying. You know, uh, I, I haven't seen one that I really felt was really even particularly interesting. You know the the one Toby did is interesting in a in a particular way, but it's not a scary film. You know, uh, it's so, funny. Yeah, I I
0: I think it, it's it's the 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 dueling chainsaws is hilarious. <laughs> that, that's such a funny scene. Yeah,
5: yeah. It, it 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 went in and, and bought into that that side of it for for sure. You know. For that reason, it's probably to me the most watchable or most interesting of them. But uh, yeah, it's uh, obviously a a different beast.
3: He kind of invented probably indie horror to some degree. um, They kind of do it, or DIY horror. Um, Just grabbing a camera, going out in the middle of Texas. Mm -hmm. You know, they only had one suit for Leatherface. So he just wore that every day. And, you know, there's just so many, not even urban legends, but just, you know, great stories that came out of that and maybe okay adventure might not be the way but the popular he popularized um kind of that method if there was no toby hooper it would have been necessary to invent him <laughs> like somebody else <laughs> would have had to have done that eventually very few his movies have any catharsis in the end
2: mm-hmm. it's it one of the first movies i remember seeing that i'll you know because always expect especially when you're younger, when you watch a horror film, that you're going to have the final girl, you're going to have some kind of goodness prevail. And and that's when she, she doesn't win in that movie. Cause even though, <laughs> yeah, she survives, you know, the tagline who will survive and what will be left of them. Like what is left of her? She's a shell of, of, of who she's, there's no way you're, you're going to need a lot of therapy after that. <laughs>
5: Kim Henkel. Sure. You guys are aware of, you know, the relationship he had late in life that, you know, turned sour. and
4: Yeah. We chatted a lot about that, you know, because he always felt that, you know, I was relatively stable uh, in my relationship. I've been married over 30 years to the same woman and he knew her and loved her. And, you know, he would always occasionally say, you know, how do, how do you do that? Uh,
5: as, as Toby tended to do when he emerges from those kinds of things and he starts, you know, contacting, you know, his old friends. And so, you know, uh, sort of about a year before he died, you know, we started, you know, having, you know, much more of a, uh, you know, uh, conversation back and forth, you know from time to time. So that was great. i was i was I was really glad that 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 happened, and I was, of course shocked by his death. i I thought he'd outlive us all, frankly, you know, he was just so armory. I think the best time we ever had together was working on that script. We had to go out and you know find nickels and dimes, you know for friends and families and connections and put things together and the whole process of putting that together and, and getting that off the ground.
3: Mm-hmm. I mean, once
5: we started shooting, of course, it was hell on wheels. But up until that time, it, yeah. it was a joy and things really actually remarkably seemed to fall into place.
4: There was a, a time when Toby and I would would meet at the Musso Franks for dinner. And uh, Ernest Dickerson heard about this and he said, well, I want to join that. And so. We said, okay, come on. And so my wife would come with us and we would have dinner, the four of us. A, a sort of kind of Algonquin round table there at that Musso Yeah, it, it, we called it the, the Ale and Quail Club and we would meet at seven o'clock at Musso Franks. We, we would get the corner table in the bar. We would eat, we would drink, we would talk, we would laugh, we would joke until somebody from Muso Franks would come over and say, uh, guys, it's uh, one o'clock in the morning. Uh, go. We're thinking of closing up. Is there any chance we could have you leave? <laughs> time to go and, home now. And they used to close at I think ten or eleven, but they never bothered us, and we never even thought about the time. We were just so involved with our conversation and and the fun we were having, and we did that a number of times. It did, it didn't happen very often. It was like maybe once every three months, when we're all in town and we're all free and available, we would get, have this great great evening. Um, I'll never forget those evenings. They were the, they were some of the, my fondest memories of Hollywood. You you talked to Toby just before he died. Yeah, you know we we chatted before he went to England. He was going to an England to England uh, for some horror convention, and we were talking on the phone. He said, "I'm going to be away, and you know I'll call you when I get back, and you know we'll we'll figure something out." And I said, "Great, enjoy, have fun, travel safely." Um, he sent me. I'm not sure if it was a text message or an email. I don't remember. But something while he was in England saying he's having a good time, looking forward to getting together when we get back. I I probably messaged him back something. Um, and then, you know, I, I kind of knew when he was coming back. I wasn't sure the specific date. And I didn't hear from him. And I didn't even think anything about it. And then I think it was the next day, you know, I was I was looking at the New York Times and it says, Toby Hooper passed away. I think it was in his sleep and you know when he came back from from England I actually I think we did have a conversation and and he was very tired and I said Hmm. of course you're tired you know with the time change and the you know all the excitement over there and speaking just rest up and take it easy for a few days and then we'll get together and had he been having excuse me, had he been having any health issues that you were aware of that that he had talked about no nothing I was aware of not mm. that I was aware of it just seemed that he was tired from this trip mm. and that was it that was the, that was the last time and I just couldn't believe it I mean when I read it in the newspaper the next day or so I was like what and I think I started calling some mutual friends to say this isn't true right this isn't this is how this isn't happening
0: it's unfortunate he didn't get more respect from from the business
4: I suppose. I suppose. But I think the people who cared, um, he did get respect. I mean, yeah, there was a controversy about, you know, poltergeist. Yeah, it was controversy about is he a real fil- filmmaker or not. But, I, but you know, I think a lot of people in the business fall prey to that kind of, whether it's out of jealousy or whether it's out of re- reality or it, it doesn't really matter. I mean, we're tough skinned and Toby had a very thick skin on him as well. And I think that's really what you need. Uh, Hey, at the end of the day, you know, a
0: a hundred years from now, as they're still looking back at at things that that we've all created, I bet you they're still talking about Leatherface. Oh, yeah.
4: Uh, Not only only will they be speaking about Leatherface, you and I, a hundred years from now, will still be talking about Leatherface. Toby (laughs) Hooper. Indeed. This was a great, great experience for me because to relive my time with Toby is just really special. Really
0: uh thank you for joining us everyone we'll... the how not to make a movie podcast is executive produced by me Alan Katz by Gil Adler and by Jason Stein our artwork was done by the amazing Jody Webster and Jason Jody along with Mando are all the hosts of the fun and informative Dads from the Crypt podcast Follow up for what my old pal the Crypt Keeper would have called terrific Crypt content